Strokeside Designs is a New York-based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my Dragon Boat Paddle Heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany & Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand-finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit PaddleJewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is PaddleJewelry.com and enter the code PINK. Are you a dragon boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Water Sports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon fiber dragon boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the dragon boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Masumi Goldman, a 42-year-old mother of two and the author of Rise and Thrive, joined us on the podcast today. Masumi shares her dramatic story of finding out that she has a BRCA2 mutation, making the decision to opt for a bilateral mastectomy, the struggles that she's faced as a previvor, and writing a book to help others overcome adversity. This is a great episode that you don't want to miss, and I hope that you will share this with anyone you know who may be in a position of having to make hard decisions as a result of a known genetic mutation. Take a listen in. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Masumi Goldman. She is a 42-year-old mother of two and the author of Rise and Thrive, a guide for transforming your mood, cultivating inspiration, and living vibrantly with chronic illness. She made the decision to have a prophylactic double mastectomy in October 2018 after testing positive for a BRCA2 mutation eight months earlier. She's here to share her, her journey of choosing to undergo this surgery without a breast cancer diagnosis. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I am really excited to have you. You are the very first previvor that we have had on the podcast. So I'm excited to have you share your story with our listeners and for me to hear your story. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family history and how this all kind of came about for you. Well, I happen to be an only child, so I don't have any brothers and sisters to look to for uh, immediate family history. And both of my parents happened to be healthy and their parents also were healthy. So in terms of immediate family history, there's not a whole lot to look at. But several years ago, I'm thinking maybe 2010 or 2011, I received an email from a distant relative. And now I know she's my second cousin once removed. But at the time, I didn't recognize her name when I saw it in my inbox. I didn't know who she was. 
Uh, but she introduced herself and said that she's reaching out to me because she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and she discovered that she was positive for a BRCA1 mutation. And not only did she carry the BRCA1 mutation, but both of her daughters also carried the BRCA1 mutation. And she told me that after examining her own family history, she was fairly confident that the mutation was passed down to her by her grandmother. And this grandmother had a number of siblings, and one of those siblings happens to be my paternal great-grandmother. So she said to me, look, I don't know what you want to do with this information, but I felt a responsibility to reach out to you and to let you know that on our side of the family tree, this is what we're dealing with, ovarian cancer and BRCA1. And uh, you can feel free to do nothing, to sit on the information, to take it to your doctor, but I wanted you to have that information. So that's how the whole concept of uh, BRCA genes even came to my knowledge was through this through this email. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so you had never even met this person? No, no. I once she explained who she was, I could sort of picture it in my family tree as to who she was related to that I did know, but I'd never heard her name before. It's not like we had any previous contact. I've never met her in person. So, uh, this was, you know, a real a real act of kindness on on her part to to take the time to get my email address and to reach out to let me know of a potential genetic mutation that that could be running on my sa- side of the family as well. Sure. So, I mean, you know, I'm I'm thinking like how how would you feel when you open an email and get this information? So, do you remember, you know, what your thoughts so, were, how you felt? Yeah. I I do remember because being that this was 2010 or 2011, you got to remember that this is pre-Angelina Jolie, right? She was the one that really brought the whole idea of prophylactic double mastectomy and genetic testing to light when she came out publicly with her BRCA1 uh, mutation news, and that was in 2013. So in 2010 and 2011, this was not widely discussed. Right. I mean, I barely knew what BRCA1 and BRCA2 were. So when I saw this email, um, I, I wasn't particularly panicked by it. I thought, oh, this is interesting um, and probably worth mentioning to my gynecologist. But I didn't feel a sense of panic. I didn't feel the need to to hop on the phone and call my doctor right away. So that, that's sort of, it, it, was, it was pretty underwhelming, <laughs> my yeah. response to it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of um, interesting to, you know, I, I would say unexpected also to get an email that's, you know, like, oh, hey, you know, by the way, I have ovarian cancer and I have this mutation and, you know, we're distantly related, but, you know, to do that. So I, you know, I think that's great that she took the time to really do some research. Um, did she reach out to any other family members that you're aware of? You know, I'm, I'm not even sure. She did okay. ask me to reach out to my family members that would be affected. So this uh, this was through my father's line, right? right? So this was my father's grandmother, but my father has three brothers. So it's not like we have any women there. So I made it my job to reach out to the children of of my dad's brothers just to make sure that at least I was passing the information along to my blood relatives. Um, but I'm not sure who else she would have reached out to. Okay. So what did you, what did you do with the information? So what I did was 
I, I didn't make a special appointment to go to my doctor, but at my ne- my next visit with my gynecologist, I I told her what happened and how I'd received this email, and and I said, you know, can we can we do some genetic testing to find out if I'm also a carrier of the BRCA one mutation? And she said, look, you know, genetic testing is is fairly expensive, and I don't think your insurance company is just going to cover it because it's not like you have any immediate family history of any kind of breast cancer or any ovarian cancer that we can look at. So she said, maybe what you could do is reach back out to your cousin, find out what the exact mutation is, and then we can write a couple of letters to your insurance company and petition them to cover the testing for that one specific BRCA1 mutation. And yeah, my eyes were like rolling back in my head at this point. I don't want to deal with the insurance company. I hate calling the insurance company even for, for claims that that are actually legitimate for, for medical services that I have received. Right. So to actually have to proactively reach out to the insurance company and say, Hey, can you, can you, uh, cover this, this one test for this one mutation? I, I just, I couldn't really like, yeah, I just put it on the back burner. I just couldn't deal with it. And I really, really did appreciate the effort that my cousin took to send me this email. But when I heard what it was going to take in order for me to get testing, being someone that is in a family that has no immediate history of breast or ovarian cancer, it was just the the bar was too high back in 2010 and 2011. So I just, I let it go. And it I didn't it seem, I would imagine that it probably didn't seem worth the hassle. I mean, here you are with a, you know, a, a second cousin, cousin once removed, um, but no immediate connection to breast or ovarian cancer. So, you know, I, I would imagine that there's probably part of you that thought, you know, I, it's probably unlikely that I have it. And why go through jumping through all the hoops to get it done? That's right. First of all, it was a lot of hoops. And at that time in 2011, I had just been diagnosed with some unknown autoimmune condition that caused all sorts of pain, roaming pain throughout my body. So I was dealing with my own issues that were actually presenting themselves at that time. Plus, I was also dealing with my daughter who was in end-stage renal failure and who would need a kidney transplant in, in a couple of years. So I had, my plate was super full yeah. and I knew that, well, actually, I didn't know at the time how rare it was, but we now know that in the United States, the chances of having a BRCA mutation are really slim, like one in 400. That's a quarter of 1%, right? So this is why even today, genetic testing for BRCA mutations is not recommended for the general population because it's just extremely rare. It's It's a bit less rare for women of Ashkenazi descent that that's estimated to be around one in 40, but one in 400 is sort of the risk that you're looking at when you're just taking a general pool of women. So I thought the chances of me having this were really, really unlikely. And it just didn't seem worth it to me to go through all that trouble to get tested. Right. And you have a family heritage of being Ashkenazi Jewish, yes? Yes, yes, okay. actually, um, yes, I'm of mixed heritage. I guess you wouldn't know that. <laughs> um, my mother is Japanese, so okay. I'm, I'm, I'm mixed 50% Japanese, and then my father is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, which basically means um, his side of the family has heritage in uh, Eastern Europe, so a number of countries there, Russia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, and uh, that's the side of the family that had reached out to me 
to say we have this BRCA1 mutation. Right. And I would imagine, too, that the doctor probably wasn't overly concerned. I mean, I know my doctor had said to me um, that my paternal grandmother was too distant. So I can't imagine that, you know, coming in with with a cousin that's, you know, again, so so distant that it would be so much of a concern. Like, I just, I can't right. imagine my, that it would have been. No, my, my doctor didn't seem particularly concerned. I mean, if I had a mother with cancer, if I had a grandmother with cancer, perhaps this would have, uh, you know, sort of set off the, the alarm bells. But at that time, in 2010, 2011, it just didn't seem to be an important road to go down. So I let it go. I let it go. And I guess we can fast forward now to early 2018. I actually had a new doctor at this point because um, my insurance had changed. And you know what it's like when you get a new doctor. You get that huge packet. Yes. The, you're filling out forms forever. They want to know your whole family history. So I felt like I was starting from scratch and and going through my entire family history. And of course, I mentioned to this new gynecologist this story from 2011 of getting this email. And my doctor said to me, she said, well, you know, genetic testing has actually come a long way since since then. She said, if, if you'd like, uh, I can give you a blood test right now. Oh, wow. You know, uh, I said, like, what do you mean right now? <laughs> and she's like, well, you, you, you write me a check. For, and I think, I mean, it was, it was, it was really not expensive at all compared to what, oh, wow. what I was facing years before. It was like, if I wrote her a check for $150 that day, she would be able to run a whole panel, not just for that one BRCA1 mutation that I was so concerned about, right. but for a number of genetic mutations across the board. And, and she said that she had partner, partnered up with a company called Color. And I think Color is a company that you can also order those uh, saliva mail order kits, oh, okay. like if you wanted to do it at home. Yeah, but I she, heard of that you know, one. since she's you, Color, yeah. So since I was at the doctor's office, she said, you know, it's not a saliva kit that we'd be doing here. I would draw your blood and then in one week, I'd have results and I would know what's going on. So she did tell me, she said, look, um, when I get the results, whether they're positive or negative, I do not give results over the phone. Good for so her. I, yeah. Let me just <laughs> say that. Right? I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I well, thought that was great. Um, yes. And she said, I'll call you in a week. And no matter what, I'm not going to say anything on the phone. You will have to come into the office to get your stack of paper with your results. So, so I said, okay, that's fine. And I got that phone call and I still remember that day because it was, it was a beautiful day. The sky was perfectly blue. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. The sun was shining. And I remember thinking, what a pain in my butt. I cannot believe that I've got to go drive myself to the doctor's office to go get a stack of papers to find out that I don't have a genetic mutation. And it's such a beautiful day. And there's so many other things that I could be doing right now. Mm. So I remember actually having that thought. And I went into the office and she had this whole stack of paper. It was like a huge computer printout in front of her. And she said, well, the good news is you do not have the BRCA1 mutation that you were so concerned about. I thought fantastic. Yeah, That's great. I'm done. <laughs> I'm ready to pack it up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go I'm enjoy going this sunny run. day. <laughs> and then she said to me, "The bad news is you tested positive for a BRCA2 mutation." Is that wild? So BRCA2 mutation. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> wow. Wow would be a word that I have um, in my limited vocabulary at the moment. And and so at the beginning of the show, I had talked to you a, or had introduced you by saying that you had a bracket too. So this whole time I was thinking, oh my gosh, maybe I got it wrong or maybe she got it wrong and didn't know that it was actually BRCA1. So you did not, you did not test positive for BRCA1, but you tested positive for BRCA2. Yes. That is insane. So please, yeah, it's I mean, yeah, I, I mean, really, because the only concern that you had was on that paternal side of your family for a BRCA1 mutation. And so, I, I mean, I definitely want to hear more about this, but I can imagine how surprised you were. I was really surprised, but at the time... I'm not sure if I made a huge distinction between BRCA1 and BRCA2. I thought, okay, well, um, maybe there's just numerous, maybe there's just numerous genetic anomalies on my father's side of the family. You like how I didn't blame anything on my mom? <laughs> I was like, there, there just must be other mutations, right? I mean, what else could it possibly be? Maybe BRCA1 and BRCA2 are both running through my father's side of the family. Right. Um, but then I later learned when, because one, one thing that they do almost immediately after you get your results is they, they encourage you to call a genetic counselor that's affiliated with the hospital that you had uh, your testing at. So it was when I met with the genetic counselor and she really started educating me on these mutations that that I came to understand that um, the Ashkenazi Jewish BRCA1 mutation is very specific. It's not like there's 20 of them. There, there's one, right? And that's the one that I thought was running through my family. It, it's not like, well, maybe it, it, it expressed itself as a BRCA2, but it's still part of the same family. Right. No, this is, this is completely independent, completely independent. So we're going back to the one in 400 chance, right, of actually testing positive for one of these mutations. That's what we're looking at. And it's so crazy because now in hindsight, I view this as such a blessing because if this cousin hadn't reached out to me about the BRCA1 mutation on her side of the family, it would have never crossed my, my mind to go get tested for BRCA mutations. So I feel like it was truly a blessing in disguise because right. I would never know about my BRCA2 mutation, which I now know came through my mother's side. Oh my right? God. And it's only, yeah, I, I don't, the whole thing is insane. It's, and I had to ask my mother to get tested because I really wanted to figure out, well, where did this come from if this is not related to the BRCA1 mutation right. from the Ashkenazi Jewish side of the family? Well, and I'm thinking too. You know, so so you end up with this BRCA2 mutation. As you were talking earlier about, you know, what your doctor was telling you was find out exactly where the mutation is and then we'll write some letters. So if you were at that point in time being tested, had you jumped through the hoops, they really right. would have only been looking at that specific gene. That's exactly right. So if I had gotten that genetic, suppose I decided, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about the insurance companies. I'm just going to pay the thousands of dollars to go have this single mutation tested. I would have found out that I was not a carrier of that BRCA1 mutation. And I would have never 
gone forward with testing to find out if I had a BRCA2 mutation. Right. That would have been the end of the road. And I would have continued living my life as if I did not have a genetic mutation on the BRCA2 gene. Right. That's scary. Scary and wild and insane and nothing. I I don't know that I've heard a story like this before. Um, yeah, I mean, no, I feel like <laughs> I feel like sometimes my my life is a is a collection of oh I've never heard that happen before. <laughs> it's it's I feel like I have a lot of events like that in my life, and um, I do too. So I can appreciate it. I feel like I'm one huge anomaly. Right, right. Yeah. What are you going to do? Right? right. So you you take the news and you move forward. Right. And you you give thanks for actually having some data uh, to be able to to make a decision about what to do. Right. So, I mean, I, I hear a lot about, you know, there, there are so many different schools of thought in terms of, you know, well, I want to have the, the information about the mutation for this reason or that reason. Um, You know, some people go through and they decide to just kind of wait and have, you know, um, additional surveillance. Some people opt to go through and have, you know, a bilateral mastectomy. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about the decision-making that you went through to finally kind of decide that you wanted to have a prophylactic mastectomy. Sure. Um, Well, the first thing that I found out, and this is sort of black and white, so I'll start here, is in terms of ovarian cancer screening. There is no effective ovarian cancer screening, right? right? So, um, the only medical recommendation being given at this point by doctors is you have to have your ovaries and your tubes removed. Uh, with my doctor, she says by age 45, okay. if you have BRCA2, by age 40, if you have BRCA1 because it's an earlier onset illness. Interesting. Um, yeah, I was told yeah. 40 and I'm BRCA2. Um, you're, you're BRCA2? I am BRCA2. Okay, two. I was told up to 45, my doctor said she'd be comfortable. Okay. And she said, look, you know, we can give you um, a pelvic ultrasound every six months and we can we can draw your blood and test for certain enzymes. But the fact of the matter is ovarian cancer is, uh, it's a microscopic illness. And by the time you actually can see a tumor or by the time it's actually noticeable, it's often very advanced disease. Right. And then you're in deep doo-doo. So yeah, it's um, a sneaky little shit. Yes, exactly. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're like, I'm, I'm trying to keep it clean here. On I know show. you I are. Doo-doo. <laughs> I figured I would just, you know, cut to the chase. <laughs> there you go. So, so with the ovarian cancer, I know what I need to do right now. I'm 42 years old. I know that by the time I hit 45, I got to have these babies taken out. I got to have the ovaries taken out, the tubes taken out until then I am uh, doing the frequent screening. So I'm, I don't know if I'm going to do it in a year or in two years. I'm, I will find a convenient time to do that. But that is the only medical recommendation because the surveillance is just not good. Right. But on the breast side, right. Breast cancer screening is actually quite good, right. It's, it's quite good. And so that is, it's given as an option that once you find out that you have a, a genetic, uh, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. Once you find out that you have a genetic mutation, you can choose to just do increased screening. And that would be in the form of alternating mammograms every six months with getting an MRI every six months. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just start with that because uh, I guess I was 42 when I had this testing done. No, I was 41 years old. So I had only had one 
mammogram at that point okay. once I turned 40. And I was still due for my second mammogram now that I was 41. And so I thought, well, so far, I don't have breast cancer. So why don't I just continue with screening for a little while? I can obviously change my mind and do a prophylactic double mastectomy at any point. I can deal with illness down the road. But for now, I don't have to act right away. I'm healthy. I, I'm, I don't have cancer, right? I'm not, I'm not sick. Just because you have a diagnosis for a positive mutation, it does not mean that you're sick in any way. So I thought, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and do the mammogram and then go do the MRI. And I figured I'd start there. So that's what I did do. And of course, you know, because it's me, it doesn't go easy. (laughs) Nothing ever, nothing's ever easy. And almost immediately I ran into issues. Oh no. Like, yeah. uh, Well, on the, on the, on the mammogram, my, lymph nodes look quite enlarged on the left side. And so they said, okay, we're going to send you for an MRI. Let's get a closer look. Did the MRI still looked funky. So then they said, okay, let's make uh, an appointment. You need to have the lymph node biopsied. Now keep in mind, this is not happening on day one, day day two, day three. This is like you go for the mammogram on day one and they tell you a week later, yeah, something looks really weird. You're going to need to get an MRI. So another two weeks passes. So you're freaking out in your head. Two weeks pass and now you go for the MRI, wait another week for results. So you're still, you know, living with anxiety. Then you find out the MRI is suspicious and then you have to wait to get a biopsy scheduled, which might be another two to three weeks, right? So time's passing, passing, passing. And the fact of the matter is like this, this affects your mental state. Absolutely. This affects how you live your life. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, well, I'm not sick. I just have a gene mutation. I don't have cancer. But now this increased screening is creating a, a huge hassle, first of all, right? Like every, every week or week and a half, I'm going someplace, whether it's to the doctor's office to have a test done, to have a test read. It, I saw that it was relentless, Yeah, it is all consuming. Yes. And I got a sense of what my life was going to look like for decades. Mm. Because once they find out you have a BRCA2 mutation, if they see anything that doesn't look right, they don't say, ah, we'll keep an eye on it. Let's check it out next time. No, when you have a BRCA2 mutation, if they see anything on that scan that doesn't look right, you're going on to the next test. Right? You're getting poked and prodded. And my biopsy came back and it was still inconclusive. You could believe that. Oh, they, wow. <laughs> so yeah. it, that's when I decided, you know what? I can't live like this. I have life to live. And what I'm doing right now is not living. It's just going from one hospital to another center to another doctor's office. And I'm, I'm not even sick, but I might as well be sick if I'm going to spend all this time. Yeah getting getting tested. Valid points. I mean, really genuinely valid points. And I didn't necessarily think about that. Um, So I'm glad that we're, you know, having that conversation. I didn't think about, you know, again, I come from this sitting on the side of um, having a diagnosis and then finding out that I'm a BRCA2 carrier versus sitting on the side of finding out that I'm a BRCA2 carrier and then potentially at some point having a diagnosis. So this is really great information, you know, and it's not something that I would have thought of, you know, because I can say from my position, 
oh, I would just do screenings. But if screenings right, which is meant, how I started. Yeah, but if screenings were exactly the way that you're talking about, and I remember those things just from my own diagnosis, and it was awful. I mean... It was. Yeah. It, it, it really was, and especially if you have a lot going on in your life, if you have a full-time job, if you have young children, if you have, I mean, if you have life to live besides right. being in a hospital, it, it, it's really, it, it's really difficult to live that way. Yeah. Well, and you talked about also having, you know, your own autoimmune issues at that time, as well as a daughter that was struggling with some things. So yeah, I mean, you had many other things to be dealing with aside from now having to be poked and prodded for things that were pop popping up that they couldn't even figure out what it was. Exactly. And they couldn't figure out what it was. And what's funny is that the breast surgeon didn't actually know what was going on until the day of surgery. Like she told me, she said, look, if you've made this decision to go forward with the prophylactic surgery, then I'm not sending you back for another biopsy to figure out what's going on with these lymph nodes. I'm just going to check them out during the surgery to figure out what's going yeah. on. And if there's a problem, I'll take them out. But if not, I'll be able to tell. So we, we never even got to the bottom of all that testing. It was just test after test after test. And it, it, it just was not the way I imagined my life to be. I thought it was going to be like my first mammogram when I was 40. I went in and yeah, it was annoying. You had to go to the hospital. It was a few hours out of your day, but I went, I had it done. I came home a couple weeks later, I found out it was clear. And then I moved on with my life. If the screening was like that, yeah. I probably would have continued in that way every six months until I did run into a problem, right? But the problem, of course, with screening also is that it's sort of like uh, finding out that the the truck going across the bridge, the, the bomb is in the truck while it's on the bridge, right? Like finding out yeah. that you have a problem after the fact, it, it doesn't really change anything. It's nice to be able to catch it early, but the fact is you'd still have cancer. So that's sort of the problem with screening also is that absolutely you're you're looking for it when once it's already too late. Right. Right. You're you're looking for a cancer diagnosis. So that that's also the problem with screening. And, you know, I'd rather deal with it before the the truck bomb ever yeah. gets onto the bridge. And that's sort of how I view what what I ultimately decided to do with this double mastectomy is, you know, I, I was trying to get ahead of it and deal with it before I had a cancer diagnosis. Absolutely. And so did you opt for reconstruction? I did. So okay. I had my, I had my surgery in October of 2018 and I did it all in one surgery. And that's one nice thing also, um, because these are things, you know, when you, when you don't have breast cancer, you, you don't actually know everything that happens. You don't know that radiation affects the quality of the skin and the ability right. to hold an, uh, an implant. I had no idea. And these are things that I learned in the process. Like, look, if you do this now, your skin is healthy. Yeah. We can put an implant in there, or if you'd rather do a, you know, a, a flap reconstruction where you use your own, your own body fat to recreate breasts. Like these are all things that you can do and consider and not all of these options will be available to you if you get breast cancer have to be treated with chemo and radiation your skin is no longer the same and then can't hold an implant in the same way right and i hear that implants fail quite commonly um with yes they do with breast <laughs> cancer patients whereas right i that's not something i'd have to consider if i was willing to go in there on day one for that surgery and basically um 
put in an implant that's roughly the same size of my original breast, I can wake up and walk out of the hospital Mm. not feeling deformed, not feeling that I've been, you know, carved up. Walking back out of the hospital, feeling, you know, not exactly the way I felt when I walked in, but, (laughs) but not feeling mutilated, not, you know, not dealing with all of um, the emotions that, that so many women must face when they have a double mastectomy and they don't have the option for reconstruction. Right. So I feel very, very grateful that I was able to, to do this. Um, and while I was healthy. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, and again, that's one of those things that I wouldn't think about, right. Being able to have that option because I am one of those people that has had many, um, not necessarily failed implants, but issues with my skin um, due to radiation. You know, I have one side that was irradiated and it does not hold the implant as well as the other side. Um, So that's also, you know, kind of interesting to hear from your perspective, another reason, you know, why somebody might elect to do a prophylactic double mastectomy. Yes. And you, you get to keep your nipples right? I mean, that, oh, yeah, that's yeah. something. <laughs> I hadn't thought of, I don't have any, so <laughs> I forget but that those things to, even exist. <laughs> you you get to keep your nipples. You, you get to have a, re, a same day reconstruction if you choose to stay the same size and don't require expanders, right? So I, I woke up and, you know, I, I mean, obviously it doesn't look exactly the same. It's a different look, sure. but I didn't feel as if I, I really didn't get the sense that I, lost a piece of myself. I didn't feel, um, I didn't feel mutilated in any way. I, I felt okay in my head. I felt like I made the right decision for myself and for my family. Yeah. Well, and that's important too, is, you know, I hear, um, again, there are, there are different schools of thought in terms of what one should do. Um, but I think it always comes down to what is right for you personally, you know? And so, if that is the decision that you've made, you have made it for a reason. And, um, you know, I know that some people will say, oh, but it was so extreme and it, you know, why would you do that? But I think you've made up, made some really great points of why somebody would consider having a prophylactic, um, you know, bilateral mastectomy, um, you know, and you, you absolutely have to do what's right for you and your family first and foremost. You do. And, you know, I, it, it's an interesting position to be in because when you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation and you don't have breast cancer like, like me, you're in that unique position where you're not sick, so, but you're being asked to make really heavy decisions as if you are sick, right? right? You're, you're being asked to make big decisions and, and it's unfortunate, but you don't have the pink ribbons and the awareness and the support and the fundraisers and, you know, people supporting you because you're not well and they want to help you get better. You're completely healthy and making what seems to be a drastic decision to cut off your breasts. So for me personally, I found that the best way for me to deal with this was to tell people after it was over, not before. Yeah. Right. I don't, 
I, I don't need the extra noise of the world and the opinions like, oh, you're crazy. You shouldn't be doing that. What's wrong with you? you? If you don't have cancer, why would you cut off your breasts? This is a very, very personal decision. And for me personally, I found it easiest to deal with it with my immediate circle of friends and family and not to announce it widely on Facebook or Instagram or to large groups of people. I wanted to make my decision for me and then tell people about it afterwards. Right. Good good for you. And I, you know, there's um, a part of me that it genuinely hurts my heart and I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional, Um, but it genuinely hurts my heart that um, you would feel unsupported. And I, and I know that that is the reality of it. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, in my opinion, it doesn't matter, um, whether you've had the, the words, um, cancer said to you, or, you know, you have a BRCA2 mutation that could lead to cancer. It is still all very heavy decisions and it is still something that impacts your life. And so, you know, I, I know that there isn't that much support out there for previvors, um, but I hope that we're getting to a point where we're having conversations about that too. You know, I feel like there are certain pockets of, you know, breast cancer or even genetic mutations where we're not, we're not having the conversations enough, not enough isn't being said about those things. Um, so that's, part of the reason why I was really excited when you reached out and said, I'd like to be on your podcast because we're we're not having these conversations and we don't. And again, it's, and I said, I've said this a number of times, but it's so much easier to say what we would do if we were in that situation when we're sitting behind a diagnosis versus sitting on the front of it. Um, Yes. And and I know that I made the right decision even more so now that, my mom was just diagnosed with breast cancer three months ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, I think we were all, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised because she's BRCA2 positive, but once we found out that, that the mutation came from her, the first thing we did was deal with the ovaries, right? The ovarian cancer risk. And my mom had that surgery one year ago. And one year later, we found out that she had breast cancer and it, she just had her double mastectomy last week, actually. Wow. And I, I know that I've made the right decision to do this because I see how different it is to have a double mastectomy if you have a breast cancer diagnosis, right? Because she's healing now, but she knows what she has to look forward to is now uh, making an appointment with medical oncology to find out what kind of chemo she'll need and whether or not she'll need radiation, like these are things that I did not have to consider. And so even if I was a bit unsure a year ago when I had my surgery, now I feel like this really solidifies my decision. I definitely made the right decision because I don't have time to be getting unnecessary cancers. I don't. And I know my risk is not zero, but I've really reduced the risk tremendously down to maybe like 1%. Right. So I'm, I'm grateful that I did it. And even though the, the recovery was hard, I mean, Oh, I'm sure. Recovering from yeah, recovering from a double mastectomy is, you know, it's not a walk in the park. No. And uh, you know, drains hanging out of you and trying to figure out how to wash your hair when you have all those drains oh my hanging gosh. out of you. And you know, and then things that you didn't even know going in. Like I, I I had no idea that I would 
lose all feeling in my breasts. Like, like you knock on your chest and it's like, knock, knock, nobody's home. Like Mm -hmm. I had no idea. And to discover this after the surgery, I mean, it's, it's startling, right? So you definitely have to be mentally strong, even if you're approaching these surgeries and you don't have a cancer diagnosis. It is not easy to have your breast cut off and then go through a recovery, especially if you've been a really active person, right? You like to do yoga and you like to go to the gym and you like to stay active. And now suddenly you're unable to do these things for an extended period of time. And you're, you're, you, someone has to drive you to physical therapy and it, it's, it's frustrating. It's exhausting. It is. It's frustrating. It's exhausting mentally. And yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, steals your independence. Like it just takes away the level of independence that you felt like you had before. Yes, exactly. And I think I really started thinking about, um, mental wellness during this time also, because you got a lot of time to think when you, (laughs) when you can't move around so much. And, um, I started thinking about writing a book. Um, and this is the book that I published a couple of months ago called rise and thrive. And, the idea behind the book was to write a guide for anyone dealing with a chronic illness diagnosis. And when I wrote the book, I was intentionally thinking of people like me who had autoimmune conditions, right? Things like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus or maybe Lyme disease or other, uh, or, or other ailments like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. But then I started thinking about it and I thought, you know what? I can write a book that's really, that would really work for anyone that has an issue that's preventing them from living the kind of life that they want. I mean, it is really demoralizing when you're unable to do the things that you're used to doing. And that's why I I decided that I needed to write a book to help people still feel productive and positive and inspired to move forward, even if they're dealing with a tough time. I love that. And so did you, did you kind of intertwine your experience with uh, BRCA2 mutation into that book? You know, I didn't really, I I didn't really talk about the BRCA2 mutation because I feel like that's a whole book all by itself. That's true. (laughs) Right. That that could be book two in the series. I feel like it's a whole other book, but I absolutely was thinking about Every, everything that went into the book, I was certainly thinking about it during the healing process after the double mastectomy, okay. right? Because I was used to doing things every day that were super active. Like I like to lift weights at the gym. I like to go for a run. I like to do yoga. These are things that I enjoyed doing. And now suddenly, like forget doing downward dog. I, I can't even reach the coffee cup in the cabinet because that requires me to lift my arm above my shoulder. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> you feel like your chest is going to rip off when you try to do something like that. So you're like, you can't even lift your arms over your head very easily. How am I going to, how am I going to practice the kind of yoga that I'm used to practicing? Right. So that's sort of what my book deals with is, well, how, how do you stay positive in the face of adversity? How, how do you keep yourself motivated, motivated to move forward and to not, um, to not become depressed because it, it really can be depressing. So what my book does is it's, it, it lays out a 40 day program of daily habits and they're daily habits that can be done regardless of your state of health, because there's so many days when you, you really don't feel like getting out of bed and you feel like you can't move. So I made sure that each one of these daily habits 
um, that would help boost your spirit. These are things that you can do even if you are constrained physically and you're unable to to be really active. That's so awesome. That's sort of what I present and yeah. I'm hoping that I can, you know, help in any way. You figure you you got to try to find if if you have to go through trials and tribulations, you want to see if you can at least convert that into purpose if you can help someone else. Absolutely. Move forward. And so where can people find Rise and Thrive? Well, you can go straight to Amazon and look there, or you can go to my website, which is riseandthrivebooks.com, and you'll see a little button right there that if you click it, it'll take you straight to the Amazon book page to check it out. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I think we've talked about so much. Um, Your story is amazing and crazy and all of those other things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, but I am genuinely so thrilled that you were a part of the podcast, um, that you spent your time with me today. I know that somebody else that is listening to this, that, you know, maybe they have found out that they have a a genetic mutation. um, And now that they've heard this, maybe they can make decisions that are right for them rather than listening to the noise that might be coming from others around them. That's right. Yeah. So thank you so much for spending your time with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting. Mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.